Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. Full show notes and sources can be found in the description. Stay up to date with the latest happenings from me, behind the scenes, and more by visiting my Buy Me a Coffee page. You can follow my page to receive these updates straight to your inbox, and you can also become a supporter of my work. The link will be in the description. Also, check out my shop where you can find podcast merchandise as well as other cute seasonal holiday items. You can find the link to the Tamsin Lee shop in the description as well. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. Your support means a lot to me and is appreciated. Today's case brings us to Texas, where a nurse named Janine Jones was convicted of murdering 60 infants and children between the years 1970 and 1982. What drew me to research this case was the fact that it was stated that instead of the institutions where she worked reporting the strange deaths, it appeared as though her actions were just ignored. And in fact, there was kind of a little cover-up going on. Her colleagues would even name her shift the death shift. So let's dive into the story of the baby killer, killer nurse Janine Jones. Petty McClellan took her eight-month-old daughter Chelsea to a new pediatric clinic on Friday, September 17, 1982. The facility had just opened the day before in Kerrville, Texas, and was close to where the family lived. The concerned mother brought her daughter in because she had a cold, and as Chelsea was born premature with underdeveloped lungs, she wanted to be safe. Chelsea was the very first patient seen at the new clinic. While Dr. Kathleen Holland talked to Petty, Nurse Janine Jones took Chelsea to another area of the clinic to play with a ball. Not long after, the nurse rushed back to the mother and doctor to inform them that the child had stopped breathing. An oxygen mask was placed on the baby's face before rushing her to the nearby emergency room at Sid Peterson Hospital. Thankfully, Chelsea recovered. Petty and her husband Reed were grateful that such a skilled and attentive nurse was on staff at the new clinic and spread the word of this wonderful nurse to other parents. Nine months later, Chelsea was brought into the clinic again for a routine checkup. Dr. Holland ordered two standard inoculations for Chelsea that morning. As Janine Jones administered the first needle, Chelsea started having trouble breathing. It seemed as though the baby was having a seizure, so Petty asked the nurse to stop. But Janine ignored the mother's request and gave Chelsea the second injection. This is when she stopped breathing altogether, jerking around as if trying to desperately breathe. Then she went limp. An ambulance transported the baby to Sid Peterson Hospital, arriving nine minutes later with a breathing tube down her throat. Chelsea tried to remove the tube, so the doctor replaced it with a larger one and gave her something that would make her go to sleep. Janine carried Chelsea in her arms the entire time. Allegedly, Janine stated, 
and they said there wouldn't be any excitement when we came to Kerrville. But there was plenty of excitement at this clinic. More excitement than most clinics ever see. And Nurse Janine was always at the center of it. Dr. Holland arranged for Chelsea to be transported to a hospital where neurological tests could be performed. But while in the ambulance, Chelsea stopped breathing again. And this time, her heart stopped. Nurse Jones gave the child several injections while Dr. Holland performed a heart massage, but there was no response. They pulled into a nearby hospital to continue treatment, but after 20 minutes, it was clear that the team failed. Chelsea McClellan had died. Janine Jones sobbed over the child's body as she cleaned her up and wrapped her in a blanket. Petty McClellan could not believe that her beautiful daughter had passed away, instead believing that she was merely asleep. They all returned to Sid Peterson Hospital with the nurse carrying the child to the hospital morgue. Dr. Holland requested an autopsy to be performed because the circumstances were just too unusual. Chelsea was brought into the clinic for a routine exam with no problems or complaints. How did she go into cardiac arrest? The McClellan parents arranged the funeral. It was reported that Petty was unable to cope with the death of her child. Her family stated that she had screamed and fainted at the funeral. They even sent her to get psychiatric help. Because of this, she spent most of her time in a haze. One day, the mother went to her daughter's grave to lay flowers and was shocked to see Janine Jones. The nurse kneeled at the foot of Chelsea's grave, sobbing and screaming the child's name as she rocked back and forth, a sight that was very theatrical and strange, as her anguish could cause others to mistake her as the mother of the child. As Petty approached the grave, she asked the nurse what she was doing there. Without a word, the nurse stared at the mother blankly, then walked away. After she had left, Petty noticed something. While the nurse left flowers, she had taken a bow off of Chelsea's grave. Janine Jones was born on July 13, 1950 and was immediately given up for adoption. Her adoptive parents, Dick and Gladys Jones, also adopted three other children. The family of six lived in a two-story, four-bedroom mansion just outside of San Antonio. Patriarch Dick was an entrepreneur and professional gambler who worked in the entertainment business operating nightclubs. He was described as free-spending and generous, which would ultimately take a toll on his family. Especially when the nightclub he operated started to go south and there was less money coming in. He would eventually try running a restaurant, which ultimately failed also. Janine was 10 years old when her father was arrested for stealing a large safe from the home of a man who had been at Dick's nightclub at the time of the burglary. The safe was said to have had 
$1,500 in cash, as well as some valuable jewelry. A priest would later turn the safe over to the police, but refused to tell them who had given it to him. Still, officers arrested Dick for the crime, which he did ultimately confess to. He claimed that it was nothing more than a practical joke, and the charges were dropped. When Dick opened a billboard business, it was alleged that this was the happiest time in Janine's life. She would spend her time riding around in the truck with her father as he put up billboards. Janine would claim that she had a hard time getting attention, often feeling left out and unfavored by her parents. She would go around telling everyone she was the family's black sheep, and she would claim that she would feel unwanted and unloved. To receive the attention she craved, she would sometimes pretend to be sick. At school, she was described as bossy. Her physical appearance, being short and overweight, was also attributed to the loneliness she felt. Classmates would call her aggressive, and her friends stated that she had betrayed them. Many also claimed that she was known for lying and manipulating people. Janine could find solace at home as she was close to her younger brother, Travis, who enjoyed tinkering around in his father's shop. At the age of 14, he assembled a pipe bomb that blew up in his face and killed him. Janine was 16 when her brother died. During the funeral, she was said to have screamed and fainted. Some believed that her reaction at the funeral was sincere, while others felt that she was just grabbing at an opportunity for attention with this show of emotion. During her senior year of high school, Janine's father fell ill. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer and refused treatment. He lived through the Christmas holidays of 1967, but died shortly afterward at the age of 56 just over a year after the death of Travis. Janine was devastated. She believed that the only way to alleviate the pain from these tragedies was to get married right away, even though she had not finished high school yet. She and her mother fought over this relentlessly. Gladys would soon begin heavily drinking while refusing to allow Janine to marry. It was too soon after the family tragedies for a wedding. When Janine graduated high school, she soon married high school dropout James Jimmy Harvey Delaney Jr. It was speculated that Janine supposedly trapped this man into marrying her by pretending to be pregnant. James was described as a motorhead who only cared about hot rods. He enlisted in the Navy after seven months of marriage. Almost immediately after her husband left, Janine began having affairs. She would often go after other men, even married men, and openly bragged about her indiscretions. She would also start spreading rumors that she had been sexually abused as a child. Gladys was tired of funding her daughter's lifestyle and encouraged her to think about a career. This is when Janine enrolled in beauty school. When her husband returned from the Navy, the couple had a child together. 
Four years later, while her husband was recovering in the hospital from a boating accident, Janine filed for a divorce, claiming that James had been violent toward her. Three years later, the couple would get back together, but their relationship would still end while Janine was pregnant with her second child in 1977. Not long after this, Janine's older brother would die from cancer. She started becoming worried that working with hair dyes as a beautician could eventually cause her to develop cancer. This is when she decided to switch careers and started training as a nurse. Although she wanted children all her life, she ended up leaving her children in the care of her adoptive mother. Her career choice as a nurse was not just because of her fear of cancer or in the interest to help those who were sick. She held a special passion for doctors. To her, they appeared mysterious and powerful. Because she wanted to get near them, she trained for a year to become a vocational nurse, or an LVN. Janine was said to be good at her job. Those who knew her stated that she had become obsessed with diagnosing people. At her first job at San Antonio's Methodist Hospital, Janine was fired after eight months because she tried to make decisions in areas where she had no authority and because a patient complained that the nurse made rude demands. It did not take long for her to find another job, which did not last long either. She would eventually find employment in the intensive care section of the pediatric unit of Bexar County Medical Center Hospital, now known as University Hospital of San Antonio. It was here where she would begin her nefarious career. The first child in her care had a fatal intestinal condition and died shortly after surgery. Janine's behavior to this was troubling, if not concerning. She brought a stool into the cubicle where the body lay and just sat there, staring at it. Her colleagues could not understand this reaction because Janine did not know the child, and she had not been around him that much. So why was she acting like this? I think all of us can relate to the fact that when a child dies, we all feel that overwhelming grief that builds inside us because, you know, they're newborns, they're babies, they didn't really get to experience life yet. Doctors and nurses most likely feel the full brunt of this grief because, you know, they're there to help them and protect them and make them feel better. But the parents are the ones who are left with that hole in their lives that cannot be filled again. So while we could say that Janine was experiencing grief that she failed to save a child in her care, her actions of just sitting there staring at the body is a bit strange to me. And it is only strange to me because it feels a bit disrespectful. The parents and family should be the ones in the room with the child at this moment, not someone who is said to have not known the child or has barely spent any time with them. That's just my opinion. What do you think about this situation? Do you think it's strange for a nurse to react in this way or no? Let me know your thoughts in the comments. The nurse would spend long hours in the ward insisting that her attention was important to a certain patient. 
She would also sometimes develop a sort of dependency on sick children and would refuse specific orders because she wanted to do what was best for the child. Her insistence that these children deserved her attention caused her to skip classes on the proper handling of drugs. And as a result, Janine would make eight separate nursing errors, one of which while dispensing medication. There was more than enough reason for the hospital to fire Janine, as she even came into work drunk once. But head nurse Pat Belko liked Janine and protected her. This made Janine feel invincible. Nurse Janine was known to never own up to her mistakes, and having someone in power to back her up made her feel like she could do no wrong. Her colleagues would even claim that Janine tried bullying the new nurses into coming to her for help, which caused more than one nurse to transfer out of the unit just to get away from her. Needless to say, not many people liked her. As she took charge, Janine became increasingly arrogant, aggressive, and foul-mouthed. She would often talk of her sexual conquests, both past and future. But even more upsetting was that she would make predictions about which baby in the ward was going to die. A new doctor was hired as the medical director of the pediatric intensive care unit. Dr. James Robotham took more responsibility for his patients than previous doctors, which meant he would begin weeding out the nurses. He also made the nurses more accountable, which did not set well with them. Everyone was upset by this, except Janine. This opportunity would allow her to bring more attention to herself. To further her need for attention outside of her workplace, she would go to outpatient clinics for seemingly minor physical complaints. In just over two years, she had gone to these facilities 30 times. By 1981, Janine demanded she be put in charge of the sickest patients, placing herself closer to those who would die. It appeared that she thrived on the excitement of any emergency and the grief when a child didn't make it. While she prepared the body, Janine would sink to it and she always wanted to be the one to bring the body down to the morgue. This routine was a fairly regular occurrence. Strangely, no one in the hospital appeared to be concerned that so many medications were easily accessible on the ICU ward in an unlocked cabinet. No one really seemed too concerned as to the reason why Janine's previous employer fired her either. They didn't follow up, address, or question the reason for dismissal. In the hospital she worked at before did not provide a reason for her dismissal. No one reached out, even though Janine was placed in a position that required a significant amount of responsibility. Even so, many were impressed by her willingness to learn and place herself in these difficult situations with the sickest children. 
she had a propensity for putting intravenous tubes into veins. Janine would request special seminars handling certain drugs and would ask many questions. But this hunger for knowledge would soon become very clear. Children in the unit were dying from problems that shouldn't have been fatal. A statistically improbable number of children were dying. There was even a time when seven children died within two weeks. The need for resuscitation became constant, but only when Janine was on duty. One child even had a seizure three days in a row, but only during her shift. On more than one occasion, Janine described these emergencies as an incredible experience. She even stated, they're going to start thinking I'm the death nurse. But her colleagues were already referring to Janine's shift as the death shift because of the many resuscitations and deaths that were happening during these hours. It even appeared to some that she enjoyed calling the parents to let them know that their children died. If a baby's health was in poor condition, she would announce to the other nurses, tonight is the night. She would also always take a special interest in the children who were near death, always wanting to be there when it happened. Rumors started to spread that Janine was doing something to the children, but Pat Belko defended her, believing that what they said was purely just gossip from other nurses who were jealous of Janine's competence. But then a six-month-old baby named Jose Antonio Flores came in with a fever, vomiting, and diarrhea. He was placed in Janine's care when he suddenly developed unexplained seizures and went into cardiac arrest. The doctors spent nearly an hour saving Jose, and thankfully, they were successful. The doctors noticed that he was bleeding badly and were unable to determine the cause. They also discovered that his blood was not clotting. Whatever the issue was seemed to have resolved itself, and the baby appeared to be fine. Until the next day, during Janine's shift. Again, baby Jose started having seizures and began bleeding. During the early hours of the next morning, his heart stopped beating. The cause of death? Unknown. The doctor had the unfortunate task of telling the parents of their son's death. As he told Jose's father, the man had a heart attack. As Janine helped the father to the emergency room, she allowed Jose's older brother to carry the baby's body. Then she grabbed the baby from the boy and ran quickly down the corridor. Several members of the family chased after her, but she lost them and continued down to the morgue. No one could understand why she was acting in this way. But blood testing on the baby showed that Jose had an overdose of heparin, an anticoagulant. No one had ordered the drug and the baby did not need it. So why was it in his system? 
Immediately, Janine's superiors became suspicious. Two resident physicians who were treating three-month-old Albert Garza found that Janine probably gave him an overdose of heparin. When the physicians confronted Janine about it, she became angry and left. Miraculously, the baby recovered soon after her absence. This led to tighter control over the staff's use of heparin. Nurses were held to be more accountable and precise in their record keeping. Also, children whose health declined while on the ward would be subject to extra lab tests. Dr. Rabotham began to complain formally about Janine Jones. In November 1981, the hospital administration had a meeting. They did not want to conduct an internal investigation of the pediatrics ward and concluded that Dr. Rabotham was just overreacting. The hospital was struggling and could not afford these suspicions to be brought to the public's attention. They didn't want that bad press. As such, they declined to follow through with the accusations. Dr. Rabotham continued to try and launch a formal investigation and keep track of the 3 to 11 shift Janine worked. As heparin was now closely monitored on the ward, suddenly another drug showed up in the death of 11-month-old Joshua Sawyer. The baby was brought into the ICU after suffering from the effects of smoke inhalation after a fire at his home. He had a cardiac arrest and doctors ordered Dilantin. While he was in a coma, doctors expected him to make progress. But Janine told his parents that he would be better off if he was allowed to die because he surely would have serious brain damage. Suddenly, Joshua experienced two heart attacks and died. The lab tests showed that there was a toxic amount of Dilantin in his blood. It was apparent someone's handling of the drug had killed the baby, but the results went virtually unnoticed. Then Janine became aware of the fact that many of those who had always supported her at work were now growing increasingly suspicious of her. This is when she decided to turn to blackmail telling her colleagues that she had records of every child that had died at the hospital and knew which doctor had killed them. Dr. Rabotham went to the administrators requesting that Janine be fired, but no one listened. But the doctor wasn't the only one they were ignoring. They also chose to ignore a nurse who continually reported supplies that were going missing. Then another strange occurrence happened. One-month-old Rolando Santos was being treated for pneumonia. Suddenly, the baby began having seizures, cardiac arrest, and extensive unexplained bleeding. All of his symptoms developed and intensified during Janine's shift. Rolando began urinating so badly that he actually suffered from extreme dehydration. While Janine was off for three days, the baby dramatically improved. But on the day she returned to work, the baby began hemorrhaging, and then he had a heart attack, 
Lab tests performed on Rolando showed that he had an excessive amount of heparin in his system. A different doctor took over the baby's care, but Janine was still able to get to him, and his condition worsened yet again as he went into a coma. Blood came up into his throat, and his blood pressure dropped to dangerous levels. A doctor was able to save the baby, and he was removed from the pediatric ICU and placed under 24-hour surveillance. Due to the increase in security around the baby, his health improved well enough for him to be released to his parents. Another doctor went to the hospital administration to tell them that Janine Jones was killing children. He claimed to have found a manual in Janine's possession on how to inject heparin without leaving a mark. The doctor also stated he had evidence of how Rolando Santos had suffered only while Janine was on duty. But still, the hospital did nothing. Another child was sent to the pediatric ICU to recover from open-heart surgery. He progressed very well after surgery until Janine arrived for her shift. He then became lethargic, and his condition deteriorated, leading to his death. The doctors were baffled by the child's sudden health decline and death. The only thing they could attribute to this outcome was some sort of infection. Then, everyone witnessed Janine grab a syringe squirt fluid over the boy's forehead in the sign of a cross. Then she repeated it on herself. She then grabbed the boy and began to cry. More and more doctors complained to the administration about Janine. Eventually, a committee was formed to look into the problem. Pat Belko and James Robotham were put in charge. An outside team of investigators came in and found that there clearly was a problem within the hospital. However, they refused to pin all of the blame on one nurse. So the committee decided to replace all of the LVNs on the unit with RNs. This meant that Janine would be transferred away from the babies. But Janine did not take this news very well and resigned. The administrators were relieved because to them, with her resigning, it took care of all their problems. But just because she resigned does not mean the problems she caused would stop. She could easily find another job and continue harming children. The emergencies and continuous resuscitations just started up somewhere else. Dr. Kathleen Holland opened a pediatrics clinic in Kerrville, Texas in 1982. As she needed help managing patients and such, she hired Janine Jones. Dr. Holland worked with the nurse at Bexar County Hospital and had even testified on her behalf during the investigation. The doctor was even warned not to hire Janine but she still did because she thought that Janine was merely a victim of the male-dominated medical patriarchy. She thought the nurse was more than qualified and she just needed a chance. It was reported that Dr. Holland helped Janine move to Kerrville and even rented out a room to her and her two children. 
But just a few months after Janine left Bexar, someone found something alarming. A novel, The Sisterhood by Michael Palmer, was found with Janine's name on it. This book is about a group of medical professionals who pledged to end human suffering by terminating patients who believed would be better off dead. Of course, in the book, you know, there was rules about what patients they would go after. And of course, you know, because it's a story, one of them takes it too far, right? But still, it's kind of weird for a pediatric nurse to have a book like this, especially with all of the allegations against her. Many parents in Kerrville were just ecstatic that Dr. Holland opened a clinic in their area. But that very first summer, during two months, seven different children succumbed to seizures while in her office. In one instance, Janine told the mother that their child was just having a tantrum. Something that almost cost the child her life. Dr. Holland transferred each of the patients by ambulance, never questioning the seizures or thinking they were suspicious in any way. Janine's accounts of the incidents always differed greatly from those of other professionals who were involved. One of which claimed to have seen Janine inject something into a child who then began having a seizure. The hospital staff knew there was something more happening at the clinic because of the number of children afflicted in that very same clinic. Also strange was how quickly they always recovered while in the hospital. Dr. Holland never really seemed to question Janine or grow suspicious of her. That is until Chelsea McClellan died while on the way to another facility. The doctor was obviously devastated, but wondered how this healthy child, who came in for a normal, routine checkup, just suddenly goes into cardiac arrest and dies. The very same day Chelsea died, Janine returned to the clinic to see another patient. The boy started having seizures and needed to be resuscitated. Luckily, the child stabilized, but the parents later stated that Janine seemed to be Excited over their child having a seizure. Happy, even. Tests would later indicate that there was no reason for an unexpected episode. It was around this time that a doctor at Sid Peterson discovered an unusually high number of baby deaths at the hospital Janine previously worked at. This doctor brought this information to the attention of a committee, an everyone started to realize that Janine Jones was doing something to these children. The committee then brought Dr. Holland in and started asking her questions. One such question was if she was using succincoline. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, but, you know, some medicines are very hard to pronounce. <laughs> but it is a very powerful muscle relaxant. She admitted that there was some in her office, but she did not use it. The committee then notified the Texas Rangers without alerting Dr. Holland. Dr. Holland then told Janine about the meeting she had with the committee. On September 27th, while Janine was at lunch, Dr. Holland examined the bottles of succincoline 
Both bottles were nearly full, but one of them had pinprick holes through the rubber stopper. Holland confronted Janine about what she had found, and Janine could not provide her with any credible answers as to why there was pinpricks in the bottles and why some of it was missing. She had even suggested throwing the bottles away to avoid questions. This alarmed Dr. Holland, as it should have. However, something else would soon be discovered. The near-full bottles were actually filled with saline. Someone had been using a lot of this dangerous medicine. A medicine which could paralyze a person, but lay fully aware of everything, unable to get anyone's attention. Before Dr. Holland could do anything, Janine informed her that she had taken an overdose of doxapin, which is used for anxiety. Because she claimed to have taken an alarming amount, she would need to have her stomach pumped. But it turned out that she hadn't taken enough to cause that reaction at all. She took four pills, faked a semi-coma state, which forced emergency personnel to treat her. Soon, Holland found out that another bottle of the muscle relaxer was ordered but it was missing. She fired Janine on September 28th and offered to help with the investigation. But the damage and reputation at the clinic had already been done. Families left her practice and Sid Peterson Hospital suspended her privileges. Because she hired Janine, Holland was losing everything her husband even divorced her during this time. On top of all of this, she saw evidence that Janine was trying to frame her, pushing the doctor to fear for her own life, which is messed up. But she was warned not to hire Janine. And I'm not saying it's totally her fault, because no, it's not. I know she believed the nurse was just experiencing a rough patch, or... You know, just wanted to help a friend and colleague out. I'm sure she did not foresee her life taking this horrible turn when she decided to hire Janine. On October 12, 1982, a grand jury in Kirk County organized hearings on the eight children from Holland's clinic who had experienced emergency respiratory issues, including Chelsea McClellan, who was initially said to have died of SIDS. Her body was exhumed to examine the tissues with an expensive test that had just been developed in Sweden to detect the presence of the muscle relaxant. The test results showed that the children's death had been caused by an injection of the muscle relaxant. While it was easy to receive the proof they needed for these drugs, it was more difficult to retrieve the proof they needed against the nurse. After all, not many people had witnessed her injecting the children. And if they did witness her inject the children with something, how can you prove that it was this harmful drug? In February 1983, another grand jury convened in San Antonio to look into 47 suspicious deaths of children at Bexar County Medical Center Hospital. 
All of these deaths occurred during the four years of Janine's employment and work schedule at the facility. The jury even received plenty of testimony from staff about Janine's behavior, but still, there wasn't any concrete evidence. Three former Bexar employees, including Janine, were questioned by both grand juries. Dr. Holland would also be questioned by these juries. Chelsea's parents named Holland and Janine in a wrongful death suit. Holland had turned against Janine by this point and offered the district attorney information regarding the bottles of muscle relaxant in her office. At some point during all of this, Janine married a 19-year-old boy. It is speculated that her reasoning for this sudden marriage was to prevent tabloid rumors that she was a lesbian, which I don't see what that really has to do with anything, but you know, okay. I mean, I know it was the 80s, but you know, still, what does that have to do with anything? She was then caught trying to flee with him. The Kerr County Grand Jury indicted Janine Jones on one count of murder in Kerr County and several charges of injury to seven other children who had been injected with the muscle-relaxing drug. For these charges, she could possibly face a sentence of 99 years. She was held in the Kerr County Jail with a $225,000 bond. In November, the San Antonio Grand Jury indicted her for injuring Rolando Santos with a deliberate injection of heparin, which he nearly died from. Janine still remained a suspect in 10 other infant deaths at the hospital. Administrators at the hospital were appalled by the findings. But they were also just really embarrassed because they knew something was going on, but they never acted to prevent it, they never investigated it, and they never tried to stop it. While awaiting trial, Janine claimed that she was receiving death threats. But the notes she showed people were strikingly similar to her own handwriting. Her trial was moved to Georgetown, Texas, and her attorney asked to be replaced. Janine would provide interviews to reporters undermining his attempts to build a defense. There were two separate trials. The first trial started on January 15, 1984 for the murder of Chelsea McLellan and injury to other children. Prosecutors would claim that Janine had a hero complex. She needed to take the children to the edge of death and then bring them back so that she could be seen as their savior. Witnesses testified that Janine would often contradict herself as she told one person she had injected a specific type of substance but would tell someone else something completely different. Just in general, her behavior was entirely suspicious. What was even more suspicious, after learning everything, was the fact that she was the one who requested for the educational seminar on the use of the muscle relaxant. But what caused her to create such chaos? Many speculate that she liked the excitement and the attention it brought her. 
The risks she took and the things she had done was against children. They couldn't tell on her. Most of them were too young to speak. So the nurse was free to create emergencies over and over again. It stated that it was Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Receiving attention from doctors by making someone else sick. So that's how she received attention. Much of this was played out again at the second trial, but this trial was more specifically surrounding Rolando Santos. And during this trial, a statistical report was presented showing that children were 25% more likely to have a cardiac arrest under Janine's care and were 10% more likely to die. A psychiatric exam performed on Janine failed to provide her with an insanity defense. Her lawyer would instead bring in witnesses to testify that she was competent, devoted, and responsible. The first jury deliberated for three hours. She was found guilty of the charges, convicted of murder, and was given the maximum sentence of 99 years on February 15, 1984. In October, she was found guilty of injuring Rolando Santos by injection. The two sentences totaled 159 years, with the possibility of parole. But what about the other suspected deaths? The staff at the Bexar County Medical Center Hospital shredded 9,000 pounds of pharmaceutical records destroying any potential evidence that could have been used under the grand jury's subpoena. Many of those at Bexar who had protected Janine all those years ended up resigning. Dr. Holland's clinic also settled the legal lawsuit that the McClellans brought. After serving 10 years of her 159-year sentence, she came up for parole. Relatives of Chelsea McClellan successfully fought to keep the nurse in prison. In 2018, Janine had been scheduled for mandatory release due to a Texas law that was meant to prevent prison overcrowding. To avoid this outcome, Janine was indicted on May 25, 2017 for the murder of 11-month-old Joshua Sawyer. Bexar County District Attorney stated that additional charges could be filed in the deaths of the other children. This was done to prevent her from being released. A judge in San Antonio also denied a request to dismiss five new murder indictments against her in April 2018. On January 16, 2020, Janine pled guilty to the murder of Joshua Sawyer on December 12, 1981, as part of a plea deal in which four other charges were dropped. For this, she was sentenced to life in prison. Janine Jones will not be eligible for parole until she is about 87 years old. Janine Jones was convicted of the murder of two children, but authorities suspect that she may have killed as many as 60 infants and children during the 70s and 80s. If these numbers are accurate, this would make her one of the worst healthcare serial killers in American history. What did you think of today's case? Do you think Janine Jones received the sentence she deserved? 
Let me know your thoughts about this case in the comments. Don't forget to like, follow, or subscribe for more stories like this. Thank you for listening and your support. Stay safe and I will see you for the next episode. Bye.